Welcome to yet another episode of Shortcast Over Coffee. My guest today is Dr. Ajay Shah. Ajay is a prominent Indian economist and researcher who has made significant contributions in the field of public policy. He's a senior research fellow and the co-founder of XKDR Forum, an independent research organization. He also co-hosts the podcast Everything is Everything on YouTube with veteran writer Amit Verma. He graduated with a B.Tech degree in aerospace engineering from IIT Bombay and a PhD in economics from the University of Southern California, Los Angeles. His past experience include professorship at the National Institute of Public Finance and Policy, New Delhi, and consultant at the Department of Economic Affairs, Ministry of Finance, New Delhi. The list of his achievements and honors will go on and on, and I'll link them all in the show notes. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. Hello, Ajay. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It is my honor. <laughs> it's my honor. Um, Ajay, it was very tough to come up with a topic for this discussion. Uh, I have to be really honest because I was I was reading through the work that you have done and it's, it's so massive. And uh, I would say, you know, that the areas are so widespread that it was very difficult for me to zero in and it shows uh it shows your caliber and and your research expertise and having looked up the works of xkdr uh what what is surprising is it is a non-profit institute uh and non-profit research institute uh, so let's start with that let's start with what xkdr does and um, how it is different from some of the things uh we have seen in india Sure, I'm happy to talk about XKDR Forum. Uh, Susan Thomas and I uh, thought through the creation of this organization in uh, 2019, 2020, and then we took the plunge and built this. Uh, here are some of the big ideas, the big concepts. The first is around the word X. Oh, so everybody wants to know what the hell does XKDR stand for? And many people guess at some connection with XKCD, which, you know, is only partly correct. So XKDR, uh, the X stands for interdisciplinary and the KDR stands for knowledge, data and research. Okay, so basically it's an interdisciplinary uh, knowledge production shop. The term forum is used in order to be less pompous than center or institute or, you know, something very lofty. Uh, and there is a lot of thinking that has gone into all this. So let me just put out some of the thought process. First for the X, the X for the interdisciplinary. Uh, I started out as an engineer and then got a PhD in economics. Susan is the same. Her undergrad was in engineering, civil engineering at IIT Bombay. Her PhD was in economics. And uh, over the years, we understood that the narrowness of looking at the world from one discipline is a bit limiting, that we should be loyal to the world, not to a discipline. Too many people are content to you know, find a status and a position for themselves within one discipline. But the disciplinary perspective is generally limiting because the world is complicated. The world is unabashedly an interdisciplinary problem. And to be useful in this world, to figure out things, to solve problems, you need to bring many pieces together and you need to break the shackles of the disciplines. 
um, my good friend Amit Verma, who uh, is uh, collaborating with me on building this podcast, Everything is Everything, has a good insight into that. He says that when we are young, we become experts in one thing. At that point, there is a terrifying moment when you start doing the second thing because you suck at the second thing. Okay, You feel like you've earned some respect and some prestige and some status on thing number one. And then it's very scary to go start at the bottom of the ladder with thing number two. And we've just got to swallow our pride and get going on thing number two. And then, you know, over the years, we'll get better at thing number two. And then we'll suck at thing number three and so on. Then uh, similarly, there are great problems of collaboration that becomes interdisciplinary because again, all of us are insecure. All of us are stupid pieces of biology. And uh, it's very easy in an interpersonal setting for me to become haughty and proud in my little hole of knowledge and to disrespect and disregard your little hole of knowledge. So you need much higher human qualities to be able to do interdisciplinary collaboration. So if you have three engineers and you want to work together, it's easier. You want to bring one lawyer into it, it's harder because the lawyer has got to respect the engineers and the engineers have to respect the lawyer, okay? And so on. So as you bring fields together, it requires a different emotional state in the room. You were saying something? So, um, I mean, interesting that you bring up this whole multidisciplinary thought process, right? Uh, having done my undergraduate engineering in India, uh, there is this extreme emphasis on core branch versus non-core branch and and to stick to one discipline after uh after you graduate and and i think mechanical and civil sort of take the brunt of it like hey if you move to software after after doing a mechanical engineering degree you are sort of it's it's blasphemous pretty much um that how can you just move from core uh and uh and, 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 you know, evolving times uh, require evolving uh, education system. So do you think it's important to teach people how to learn to be better at um, different, uh, like you said, you know, thing number one versus thing number two? Uh, yeah. is, is it? So I feel at, at, at school, we should learn to be a master of one. But above all, we should learn to learn. We should uh, free our minds and, you know, not get into that narrow association that I am X particularly given the extension of longevity, all of us are going to live longer than ever suspected. And, you know, really to have an interesting life, we should be doing many things. So I feel that the world demands interdisciplinary capacity. You have to bring many kinds of knowledge to understand the world. So, you know, for example, consider climate change. Climate change demands atmospheric science, it demands economics. It demands uh, so much knowledge of society. It, it requires a full understanding of human beings and society. It demands international relations. It demands treaties. Uh, it demands public finance. It's like wherever you go, all aspects of climate change are complicated. And we need to learn how to assemble all that knowledge. So, you know, narrow sub subject matter experts. Uh, for example, you could be an energy expert. You could know a lot about carbon intensity of the economy. And yes, that is precious, but that's not the full picture. We need to assemble the full picture. We need to create individuals, teams that are able to see that bigger picture. So that's the X of the XKDR forum, that the dream is to be able to unabashedly cultivate 
interdisciplinary capabilities. And, you know, as you would have seen from our website, we do so many things. We do bits of computer science. We do bits of economics. We do bits of law. We do bits of public administration. So we are all over the place. And uh, when you visit the office and meet the team, you will find this kind of unabashedly interdisciplinary flavor in the people also. So that's one part of the story. That is the X of the interdisciplinary. And the other word is forum rather than something grandiose. And here the idea is that really uh, all the interesting and important things in the world require collaborations. And no one organization is going to have enough punch to materially matter in being useful in any one field. So the culture, the worldview, the dharma, should be a flexible, open platform where individuals and organizations external to us are very comfortable connecting up and partnering and collaborating. So we seek to build a deeply collaborative DNA. Uh, there are many individuals on a shades of gray line between employee and friend, and that's okay. So we don't need for people to sign on as an FTE we don't fight on the distinction of what's an employee, what's a non-employee. And there are many, many wonderful sister organizations in the country where we are able to join hands and do good collaborations. And we work hard on that collaboration DNA because that's really how things will get done. The, the country is vast. The problems are horrendously complicated to be useful, to make progress. We have to join hands. We have to build a collaboration DNA. So rather than a a vertical hermetic tower of excellence we are a forum where we are an open platform where many people are welcome and many people come together so yeah this is xkdr forum yeah you you touched on on, on the climate change uh thing and 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 sometimes it in it's it's fascinating how you know the demand means meets supply right so we probably don't have as many people uh, enrolling for a let's say an atmospheric science degree or an energy science degree um, but at some point there is a there is a radical shift in in you know resources being allocated to one particular technology uh, i think battery technology was something that was uh, i mean people never knew that it'll sort of burst into the scene uh, probably like 15 20 years ago but now now it is um, so you know sort of link it to your point where you know learning to learn is important when when the sub, when the demand is higher in something say climate sciences will will people from other disciplines come and uh, join hands and and sort of make it just work does it does it work like clockwork um you are asking very uncomfortable questions to my the part of my mind that is uh, seeking to represent and speak for the indian research community and the institutional landscape of the indian research community Things are not uh, done very well in India. So I want to take you to a trivial famous example. Uh, look back at the 80s. Okay, In the 80s, to any sane person, it was clear that there was a giant software revolution happening around India. What, I will ask you, was the scale of the supply response by the academic institutions? And the answer is basically zero. That in 1980, there were probably 
uh, a class size of 30 in computer science at IIT Bombay. And in 1990, it was probably 40. Okay, so there was a 10% response over a decade when, you know, really in any reasonable world, there should have been a tenfold increase or a hundredfold increase. And this is where we get to the difficulties of the Indian uh, research institutional landscape that the mechanisms of management of the passion of the accountability of the feedback loops are really quite weak. So there are two ways in which this goes. Partly, you need organizations where there are incentives and alignment, where there are people in the organization who want to make it great. And a lot of the government organizations in India really have uh, difficulties in their rules and procedures and the nature of their leadership. There is nobody in uh, IISC or in IIT who's really passionate about making the institution great. Okay, the board doesn't work too well and the leadership tends to you know not have that level of energy and everything is tied down by government rules so all in all these organizations tend to like live the same day over and over they are not looking out at the world and figuring out what is my place in the world and how best can i contribute to the world so that's a difficult part of this story and the other part is a funding environment uh, philanthropy should be very important but in India, philanthropy mostly is concerned with a humanitarian instinct of helping poor people who have been in a cyclone. So building knowledge and building the institutions of the country, solving the malfunctioning of the Indian state, these things are generally not the priority of philanthropists that you see in India today. Generally, the philanthropy world wants to look for a very simple kind of impact which is did you feed 15 children today and you know that's great feeding children is very important but i feel there is such a higher bang for the buck when you can be more strategic when you can think into the future when we can take risks and we can go after the big uh, problems of the age and yeah, generally I just wanna, that's not yeah i just want to digress on that philanthropy yes, thing that you touched on um is it is it this whole family air sort of a thing that that goes on in India versus let's say an Andrew Carnegie or a Vanderbilt I mean this whole philanthropy culture was much earlier in in the US where you know people set up uh, universities had huge money I wanted so I want to distinguish between two things one is what I call the simple notion of philanthropy I build a temple I build a school I feed some children I start a university okay and these things earn respect and prestige in the society and, you know, and look more power to them. Okay. I mean, I, I love these people gifting your money away to be good to other people is a noble instinct, but what is not yet happening in India, what is happening on a much bigger extent elsewhere in the world is to think for impact on a bigger scale where the best use of philanthropic money is to try to solve deeper problems in the world to build knowledge, to create institutions, to help change institutions, to take risks, and uh, to be part of changing the world in bigger ways, rather than narrowly saying that I will help some children. So I respect and value and admire all kinds of philanthropy. But I feel the highest bang for the buck lies in the aspects of knowledge and institutions and institutional capacity. Now, there you get to the word culture. Currently, the culture of philanthropy in India is, you know, mostly 
oriented around that humanitarian impulse of doing flood relief rather than the deeper question of why are floods happening and you know how can we change the world so that floods happen less and there are fewer people living on the floodplain and that's the kind of thing where philanthropy can be deeply important another piece of the puzzle which is again lacking in india is the uh, in the design of the institutional mechanisms through which public money comes into the journey of knowledge so when we look for example at the united states uh, when covid happened the nih opened up large scale uh, call for grants uh, call for proposals for research grants that would solve 20 problems connected to covid we need to figure out a treatment we need to figure out how it is communicated so that we can have non pharmaceutical interventions we need to figure out a vaccine okay we need to figure out long covid the nih jumped into the act how not by hiring scientists or having employees but by putting out grants when covid happened nih did not have employees who went after the problem they funded external energy okay the united states government all in all put research money into pfizer and moderna and a whole bunch of others including many failed projects and that is how the global covid response worked out that's not how innovation funding works in india uh, ramesh mashelkar the former head of the csir one of the great scientists of india himself a fellow of the royal society and susan thomas and i are right now building a paper on this subject on how a better bang for the buck can be achieved for the innovation policy of the country by taking money from public funding for innovation and putting it out through competitive grants to the government universities to private universities to private research organizations to private firms that the real value of nasa is not a gimmicky thing that you put a man on the moon the real value of nasa is that they drove improvements of science and engineering in universities in private companies okay nasa jpl sits inside a private university caltech okay and that's where there is an impact upon the whole country now that whole piece is missing in india so there is really a very poor knowledge institutional landscape in india where there are government universities they get money from the government they're a bit unresponsive they have poor incentives and you know they're not faring that well in keeping up with the complexities of the modern world and there is the philanthropy world which is mostly doing humanitarian stuff which is not doing the deeper impact upon the world around risk taking knowledge institutional transformation and you know making india a better country on a deeper scale rather than the immediate joy of helping people who have been affected by a flood so because of all this it's a tough landscape it's a poor intellectual landscape it's a weak intellectual landscape in india and then of course for susan and me that was the great motivation that in this difficult landscape we felt the most useful thing we could do was to try to build a private non-profit research organization so recognizing all these difficulties and you know i don't want to understate how hard it is for us to do this navigating this resourcing landscape is truly hard we we fare pitifully badly in terms of finding dribs and drabs of money to do this stuff but we feel this is disproportionately important because there are so few people doing this
Yeah, I, I mean, I think philanthropy saw, does not solve causation in India. Like it, that's that's probably a fair way to put it. I mean, I was checking out Amit Verma's uh, episode on on Bihar, and um, they touched on this interesting point that you know, even though the uh, the graduates, the undergrad undergraduate degree holders in India, uh, do not have the required skill to sort of sustain in a in a demanding software market. Uh, the entrepreneurs sort of jump in and they figure it out. Like for instance, Infosys, right? They they just train people for six months and and figure a way out. Uh, and and that is non research. But uh, but for research, like you are running uh, this this forum, uh, as I, as I may put it, how hard has it been to uh, get funding from? I mean, get funding in general and also Very get funding from uh, private institutes to uh, or private hard. players to 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 run run it it's been very hard we are two and a half years into the journey and uh, it is a truly difficult landscape uh, there are just so many limitations on the funding question so we struggle and uh, by the way everybody in india who is trying to do good things is uh, struggling because of this so as i said there is like a humanitarian notion of philanthropy and there is little else. Uh, very, very little uh, philanthropy is trying to solve deeper problems, is trying to take risks and is trying to build knowledge. So, But you still have to uh, pay the people who work uh, work on this and at some point you will start to use your own funds. Uh, is that Has that ever been the case? Yeah, I mean, we, 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 we are a startup started out with personal money. Wow. That's that's amazing. I think, I think the passion and drive to continue it for for so long is is quite quite great. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, now jumping on to um, the climate change uh, part, I don't want to dive deep into what climate change is. What I mean, it's it's everybody knows it. But from a public policy perspective, uh, you know it. You know Kyoto Protocol was 1997. Paris Agreement was 2015. Now now what i what i feel is people at the top uh make these uh public policy changes and when they mess up then everybody has a huge price to pay but they don't have as much accountability right uh, and it does not have to be in the, in the field of climate change you know you see what what's going on with donald trump here in the us but but from a public policy standpoint after the paris agreement uh you know has has india done anything uh in 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 the field of let's say electricity because electricity happens to be the biggest contributor of climate change in india what has been some of the positive things that has happened uh to tackle climate change from a public policy standpoint there has been a huge increase in renewables capacity in india the share of renewables generation is up to 30% and 30% is a lot bigger than zero and is far, far away from 100. So that's sort of the Indian problem. Uh, I, I have a psychoanalysis of the Indian policy elite on the question of climate change. Okay, and I, I've been sort of watching this field and talking with some of the protagonists for a very long time. I feel that the mood in India has always been, by policymakers has been, that look, we have enough problems to solve. We suffer from mass poverty. Okay. There is no greater indignity than mass poverty. 
uh, we we are a country where the women's labor force participation is 12%, where the social status and the respect of women is essentially amongst the worst in the world. The labor force participation in Pakistan is higher than that in India. The labor force participation of women in Bangladesh is higher than that in India and so on. Okay, so we have horrible problems. We are a poor country. We have horrible problems. Policymakers have said, I have enough on my plate. Don't ask me to solve one more problem. Okay, then they have jumped on a moral high horse. They have said that, look, the bulk of the carbon in the air was put there by advanced economies. So don't ask us to do anything. You got rich while pushing carbon into the air. So I will get rich by pushing carbon into the air. Don't ask me to do anything different. Yeah, I'm, get, has... I'm getting reminded of David Letterman's trip to India uh, and the interview that he did. This was the exact statement that was said by, I don't remember who, but yeah. But this is a mainstream view in India. And uh, it goes by the name climate justice, where there is a certain equality in uh, everybody's rights to pollute the world. Okay. Now, I think that this is not a great line of attack for a couple of reasons. So, uh, it is fair for India to say that other people's carbon emission has a negative externality upon India. But that's not the only thing in the account book. There have been many other positive externalities that have come to India. Okay, Many good things have been made in the world where India has been a beneficiary and others have not sat with an account book and said, you owe me so much money. Okay, That is an interesting point. I never thought in that line. Okay, wow. So, I mean, you and I are doing this video call across the continents. Every scrap of this was made in the advanced economies of the world. Okay, we, the creation of this technology, the operating system. So I have this amazing piece of technology called a professional grade microphone being sold for 2000 rupees. Okay, that is a bounty, 2000 rupees. That it's a gift from heaven that at a price of 2000 rupees, we are able to buy, you know, what is really a high quality microphone that was built out of generations of R&D and knowledge development and research by many, many people all over the world. And all these public goods of knowledge have come to India. So there are positive externalities that have been created abroad. Hey, okay, democracy, constitutionalism, British common law, all these things are externalities that came into India. If you came to India in 1858, before the British took control of India. It's not like any of the other kings were particularly doing any political project of mention. So there, there's a lot of give and take that happens. And I feel that one should not pick out one piece and harp on that negative externality. They, all the prosperity in India has been enabled by things that have happened elsewhere in the world where India has been a beneficiary. The, the single industry that powers the Indian economy is IT. IT is based on advanced economy technology, advanced economy equity and debt financing coming into India and advanced economy customers. All this is a favor bestowed upon India by the advanced economies. And you know it's a positive externality that the advanced economies built a world and India was able to harness that world. So beyond a point, I feel we should not be so selective in picking one negative externality and not seeing that fuller picture. Second, India is actually a big 
player in emitting carbon. India is now the third largest emitter of carbon in the world behind the United States and China. Uh, India now emits more carbon than the entire European Union put together. Okay, So India is a significant emitter. So it's not even a pure free rider problem. Like, look, if I was Sri Lanka, what Sri Lanka does by way of carbon emission doesn't move the needle on global climate change. So it is possible for Sri Lanka to make two arguments. Argument one is negative externality, climate justice. And argument two, look, I'm so small anyway, it doesn't matter. If I drive my emissions to zero, nothing changes in the world. That's not true for India. India is a dada. India is a big country. And uh, for every uh, one ton less that India emits, it's material. It is making a difference to the uh, aggregate amount of carbon in the atmosphere. And India is at the receiving end of a pretty horrible journey in terms of the impacts of a warming world. And in that, I want to put in a last point, which is that for a one degree change in the temperature, the adverse impact in a poor country like India, in a country with weak governance, with low state capacity, with a mostly malfunctioning state, the impact of a one degree change in the global average temperature is higher in India than is elsewhere, than is present in advanced economies. So once again, it is in India's self-interest to say, look, I don't want to go down this route. It's like my health system works badly. When there are heat waves, it's horrible for India. So we should have even more skin in preventing that damn occurrence. Okay, so because so many things malfunction in India, India has a higher interest. The people of India have a higher interest in uh, holding back the warming of the world. And that requires A, India emitting less carbon where we are partly a direct beneficiary. And then whatever foreign policy clout that India has, should be thrown into the battle saying, let's bring the world together and let's emit less carbon. Instead, India is on the side of advocating, look, let's not fight for carbon uh, reduction. So India is on the wrong side of these debates. India tends to say, look, not my problem. Don't bug me. You guys did something. You guys go figure it out. India has not been a strong champion of solving the global problem of uh, climate change. So this is my first part of the argument that I think that it is in the best interest of the people of India for the Indian journey to do more decarbonization. So as I said, I think the glass is 30% full. About 30% of energy in India is uh, renewables. Uh, there's 70% more of a journey to go to get to a completely decarbonized India. And it will require enormous work. It's a very big journey to get to decarbonization. Currently, the official uh, destination of the, the government, the stated date for the government is 2070, which is like 50 years away. It's a kind of time horizon on which basically there is no planning. There's no meaningful sense. Targets have to be five years, 10 years, then you're getting something done. Yeah, regular it's, checkpoints, right? It's it's. Uh, so there, there's got to be a tangible decarbonization of the economy. I don't think that has begun. What is growing is renewables but we're not really shrinking the carbon footprint in the economy in a large scale as of yet. And, and with the growth of renewables in India, how much do you think uh, it has to do with the policy changes versus entrepreneurs diving in? Um, and, and, and what, I just want to add another point here is that, you know, India is blessed with very good sunlight for, for the most part of the year. And, and why hasn't solar taken up as, as much India as is blessed country. with uh, sunlight uh, and India is also blessed with some of the most amazing offshore wind capabilities off the coast of Tamil Nadu, uh, off the coast of Sri Lanka, off the coast of Gujarat. 
Okay, I seem to think that off the coast of Tamil Nadu and near Sri Lanka alone is like 40 gigawatts right there. And you know, I'm just assuming that it will be Indian capitalism that will figure out all the contracting to build offshore wind off the high seas of Sri Lanka and partly send that to Sri Lanka and partly send that to India. But, you know, it really makes sense for Indian capitalism to be the leader in that journey. Um, there have been elements of public policy that have been helpful for the renewables uh, journey so far. Uh, that journey has increasingly hit problems where the foundations of the working of the electricity system are proving to be a bottleneck. If you make electricity in India, you're stuck with a deadbeat buyer. You sell to a state electricity board and the state electricity board is fundamentally a bit weak on their financial capabilities. So the private person is concerned that we will not get paid. And there are many, many episodes all around the country where private people don't get paid on time. And this is exerting a significant adverse impact on investment. More generally, the regulatory and policy environment around electricity has numerous problems. Uh, as you will know, Akshay Jaitley and I wrote a paper on this subject. And we think that investability is the bottleneck. So we like to make a distinction between investability and investment. It is the government and only the government that can solve problems of investability. And we look to public policy, including the Indian government, including support from advanced economies on money, on knowledge, to help India overcome these limitations and achieve a sound platform of investability. Okay, and because of the way the Indian constitution is structured, this is a story playing out one state at a time. There is no India in this. There is Gujarat, which is an excellent state, which knows how to pay renewables people on time. And there is Telangana or Tamil Nadu, which does not. So it's a story, it's a battle that's played out one state at a time. And one state at a time has to solve those policy impediments. And once those policy impediments are solved, we think there'll be a lot of investment. There'll be a lot of private investment. There, the barrier is that there are numerous macroeconomics, financial and taxation limitations that interfere in the cross-border flow of capital. So there's essentially infinite capital in the world that would be fine coming to India, but there are numerous difficulties in Indian finance, financial regulation, capital controls, taxation, company law, policy uncertainty, policy risk. All these things are holding back investability. So We've got to solve the difficulties of electricity policy one state at a time. At the level of the union government, we've got to solve problems of financial regulation and uh, monetary policy and taxation and policy risk and rule of law and the safety of private investors. And once these things are done, Akshay and I think that infinite global capital is available to move into India. There's no choke point there. The mistakes are on our side. So I think we've got to get our act together and then vast amounts of capital will come, which will solve the problem of building out the renewables world, of building out a decarbonized world. But, you know, for example, you will need a different kind of transmission system. You'll need a different kind of distribution system to live in a renewables world. 
it just will not happen as long as there are public sector distribution companies. They'll need to be privatized. You'll need a large number of private utilities. There's nothing special about a state. Okay, Bombay has BSES, a Bombay Suburban Electricity Supply. There can even be competition. There are multiple uh, distribution companies operating in Delhi, and they don't even need to be given neat and tidy uh, pieces of turf. Okay, maybe multiple distribution companies can build over multiple geographical territories, create a more competitive environment. But there is a journey of public policy that has to solve the impediments. And after that, the private sector will bring infinite money and do investment and build the country. We're still in a socialist hangover where partly we have we in India haven't solved those foundational policy problems. And partly we're very comfortable using state power and state money. So government money goes into building thermal power plants or distribution companies and you know, I just think that's fundamentally limited because there is so little capability and money in the Indian state that that is not going to solve the problem. Only the private sector has the energy, has the intellectual capacity, has the management capability, and has the infinite resourcing of the global financial system to be able to go to all the building. The responsibility of the state is to solve those policy problems. The responsibility of the philanthropists is to be part of that knowledge an advocacy journey in solving all those problems. Yeah, what what is surprising is that in in the non renewable front, uh, you know, the government of India has Coal India Limited, uh, NTPC, and 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 all those. I could be wrong, but I don't see government jumping into the renewable space as much, and it's no, they're, mostly they're also. so they're there also. But it's I feel there's an important socialist barrier that has to be crossed. We we've just got to understand that look, this ain't working that government is not the answer on the production side of the economy. And we should be thinking the private sector will do better. The private sector has better engineering, better financial structure, better incentives to do all the pieces, the generation, the transmission, the distribution. There are policy mistakes holding all that back. And then, you know, we are in this middle road where partly the private sector does not do that investment, then the government starts saying, oh, but then I will do the investment because I will supplant the private sector. And that's how you're a poor country 75 years after independence. So we've got to understand that what is the role of the private sector? What is the role of the government sector? These are two separate problems. Government is there to solve policy problems. Once the policy platforms are correct, we will have investability. Okay, There are electricity policy problems. There are financial regulation problems. There are taxation problems. All that is the job of the government. And once investability is achieved, the private sector will bring infinite foreign money and be more competent, more capable than the public sector. Note importantly, the private sector will take risks. The private sector will make mistakes. The private sector will go bankrupt. All these things are beyond the capability of the government. Governments can't take risks. People worry about going to jail in the time of retirement. The government cannot afford to make mistakes. They will just always claim that we were never wrong. We never made a mistake. We'll just keep going on and on with a bad idea. They won't admit that this failed. They won't declare a company bankrupt, close it down and move on to the next project. These are all very basic things. So, you know, some of the fundamentals around the concepts of socialism and a market economy have not yet been deeply internalized in India. What uh, what states have sort of championed the move towards something like, say, a solar? Uh, and And I feel like, you know, independence in the in the energy sector can can bring 
prosperity it's it's uh it's no it's no rocket science but some states like let's say bihar and uh, and up uh, you know there's still massive power cuts uh, uh from from what i know so why have the states not championed the move to solar and if some of the states have which ones uh, are they initially in india there was a bit of a surge for some time uh, there was a lot of optimism around india and solar and uh, then many private firms uh, hit the problem of uh, public policy that electricity policy worked in ways that really disrupted many many private vendors and uh, there was a disenchantment that took place in many parts of india so particularly in the last 5 years the heroes of solar are gujarat and rajasthan these are the two states where really there's good stuff going on there is high growth rate so whatever is happening i don't have deep insights into the policy frameworks of gujarat and rajasthan but just looking at the data there has been considerable commissioning of solar in gujarat and in rajasthan so now coming back to um, xkdr uh, what are the major areas that the that that you guys are researching on and uh, what is the number one priority or is there any any particular area that you guys are focusing on there's no number one priority but there are a couple uh, of things where over this period we've made some progress and we are pretty proud of the work so uh, one big field we have been in is government contracting so as i've described to you for example about electricity there is a huge problem whenever there is a contract between a government and a private person okay how government does procurement how the government buys pencils how the government buys fighter planes how the government pays a vendor on time how government handles disputes with a vendor this is a big problem in india and uh, we think that for the development of state capability this is a critical choke point so we began a research program on government contracting a couple of years ago and we are quite pleased and proud at the body of knowledge that has been created i feel we have a bit of a leadership position in this narrow field and we are developing fundamental knowledge on how and why government contracting is broken and how it can be fixed and we are at the early stages of some of this knowledge going back into the real world and starting to have an impact and reshape the way real people do these things but we have been heavily on that knowledge journey so that is one field where many things have been done the second field where we've done a lot of work and where i feel we have good results to show is the legal system there are few things more important for the country than the legal system uh, farid zakaria once said that democracy happens more in the courts than it does in elections so if we caricature democracy as an election once in 5 years and for the rest all kinds of violations of rule of law then you know it would really not be a working democracy it would be more like putin's russia where yeah on paper putin runs elections but you know in a meaningful way uh, the people do not have recourse against the arbitrariness of state power and then you know there cannot be viable political parties opposition parties need funding they need safety they need to not go to jail okay all these things so rule of law is a fundamental feature of the economy the legal system is a fundamental feature of the economy and by and large this has not worked out well in india uh, ever since 1947 
in many ways, the working of the courts is worse today than it was before. So a hundred years ago, there was a metropolitan magistrate's court in uh, the fort in Bombay, which was you know, one of the good courts in the whole world at solving commercial disputes. And you know, we can't say that today. So over a hundred years, we have declined in our ability to solve conflicts between two commercial parties, uh, having a dispute. And that's quite a tragedy. Uh, a well-functioning legal system is fundamental to the emergence of a high-income uh, economy over the next 100 years. So India is a very poor country. We have a 100-year journey to become an advanced economy. This is one critical building block. We in XKDR Forum have been building a research program on the working of courts, of building data sets, of doing statistical research, of a first principles, understanding of what is going wrong with the courts of India. And once again, early stages of trying to reach out into the real world and uh, get some real world impact in terms of these improvements going back into the real world. Yeah. A third field we do a lot of is uh, statistics and data science. Uh, we work with satellite imagery. We write uh, packages for the new programming language, Julia, and so on. So we are computer engineers, we're computer geeks. We're at the global frontier in some of these things. Yeah, and and on, the, on quotes, um... I hear that there is a summer break in in India uh, for courts. So um, probably for two and a half to three months, the courts don't function. Uh, is that a huge setback when it comes to uh, speedy redresses? Yeah. And uh, why do we have that? Uh, is there a story behind it? Would love you to unpack. I, there must be a great story. Unfortunately, I don't know the backstory. Uh, there are there is a lot of focus around inputs in the discussion around courts, where you might want more judges, more benches, more days, okay? But when you pause to think deeply about it, the processes are broken, okay? So think of a court as a services organization. It's a machinery where some information comes in and some people apply their minds and then they arrive at a decision and they write an order. It's a services production organization. And there are many, many features of the process that is applied in the court that are just dysfunctional. And you know, for all of us in modern India, we have so much knowledge about process engineering. We know how to run processes better. Okay, this is India. We are the producers Jugaad. of process engineering for the yeah. whole world. And uh, in the Indian courts, there is you know, very little of that kind of knowledge. There's been a certain kind of crude computerization of courts where around old processes, there is a computer filing but it's almost funny that sometimes you have to also give a printout of the filing just to satisfy the rules of a physical system. So, for example, the way banking has been transformed. If you looked at a bank in India 30 years ago and you look at a bank in India today, particularly with the private banks, it's, it's transformed. You, there's, it, there's no comparison at all. Whereas by and large, if you look at a court of India 30 years ago and you look at a court of India today, by and large, it's the same. The dysfunctionality is the same. And some of the political economy has actually become worse. So a lot needs to be done in understanding, analyzing, diagnosing, and getting on that journey to well-functioning courts. And you were uh, talking to me about, you know, Excadia working on the government contracting. And, and government contracting has been sort of the center point of a lot of scams that, that, that we hear in the news. Uh, where do you think the gap is? Of we are in India, it's a two-part problem. On one hand, there is way too little contracting. Okay, What has happened is a, a wise, career-conscious official 
will think, why should I enter into a contract? Because there'll be some controversy around it. And 30 years from now, the CBI will be questioning me. So there is a great proclivity on the part of the Indian state to just not do contracts. So, you know, if you've ever wondered uh, why did uh, the COVID vaccination in India not work too well? One important part of the answer is that the government never went to uh, Serum Institute and gave them contracts to buy vaccines. Serum Institute did not have the contracts, so they did not build the capacity to make vaccines for Government of India because Government of India did not write contracts on Serum. Okay, And for a contrast, elsewhere in the world, governments wrote risky contracts, meaning before the COVID vaccine was developed, they wrote guarantees that we will buy 100 million of this vaccine at $20 a pop once you have proved ABCD metrics of the vaccine quality. So it was the exact opposite. But elsewhere in the world, governments used their contracting power to drive the R&D and production by the private sector. In India, all the R&D was done abroad. Okay, AstraZeneca, Oxford University developed the vaccine. But on the production side, the government did not give a contract to Serum Institute. And so basically, India was late to the vaccination story. So the bias in government is to do less contracting. As far as possible, the wise career conscious official will do less contracting, will not give out contracts. And so the bias is on empire building. You will hire people, you will build more and more departments, you'll build more and more public sector companies because it's too complicated dealing with the private sector. So yes, there is a corruption problem and there is this failure to contract, inability to contract, uh, lack of inclination to contract and misbehavior by the investigating agencies, the witch hunts that a CBI runs or a uh, enforcement directorate runs, and of course, the courts, that because the courts don't deliver speedy justice, once a person is accused, they suffer very high consequences, even if they're completely innocent. So all these pieces come together to hamper contracting. That said, there are a lot of simple things that can be done better. So just basics of process improvement on how contracting works will go a long way. It's not about a law, it's about process engineering. It's about writing down careful manuals and establishing checks and balances, which are entirely feasible under present laws, then doing training, developing contracting as an expertise. So as an example, NASA has hundreds of individuals who are their employees, who are specialists in contracting. They only know contracting. I mean, by diffusion, they would have learned a little bit about the space program, but their expertise is contracting. And you know, at ISRO, there may be probably 10 such people. So contracting is an expertise. We need to cultivate people with that kind of expertise. We need to create that body of knowledge of hundreds of pages of documents, research papers, data sets, training materials by which we grow that expertise. It has to become a, a community of practice where people stand up and tell each other stories and do case studies and learn from each other and so on. All these pieces are currently lacking. So this is again, that long journey that India is on a long journey to learn to become an advanced economy. The courts are a problem. The contracting is a problem and you know, climate change is a problem. So all these things are the stories of the next 50 years that we need to get behind. Yeah. Uh... Not just NASA, but the, but the De Department of Defense here has this thing called SBIR program, SBIR, STTR, 
where they give like small businesses, like you could be a defense contractor and they'll give you like phase one of a project if uh, if you could write a good enough proposal. And they'll have like five to six universities do a phase yeah. one and depending on the results, they'll give you phase Make two. Make competitive, and, and... do risk-taking, like do experiments with risky ideas. Look, the you know, in the world of research, we know very well that if there is no element of risk, it's not research. The heart of the world research is risk. You're trying something that has never been done before. There are no guarantees. Now, how do you do this inside the Indian state? The Indian state says, I don't take any risks. If you put money and the work did not get done, CBI will come after you. Yeah, and and with contracting, even if India is uh, sort of making a deal with an external uh agency or a company that's that's uh, in the european union will they not emphasize that you need we need to have a contract before we get this going no there are always contracts so when uh, weapons are purchased from overseas there are definitely contracts it is just that the capability on the indian side in contracting is poor again we have a whole lot of socialist problems so for example in india there is an obsessive view that there should be no middlemen in defense contracting and this is just a lack of understanding it's a lack of knowledge on how the world works. In any business, there are always middlemen. How are you going to reach out into the global industry and find out what are all the offerings without talking to middlemen? So when you want a night vision capability to put on a certain kind of helicopter, the first port of call are middlemen. There's nothing wrong with middlemen. and But under Indian socialism, middlemen is a bad thing. Who are these middlemen? Is there an example? They're representatives, they're agents. So all the top global defense firms hire agents in India who to represent their interests. It is their job to walk around various offices pr proposing, hey, you know, we have a great night vision goggle. It should be used for monitoring the heights of Ladakh. That is their job. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I mean, coming back to research, uh, you know, Indian companies, like for instance, IT sector has boomed quite a bit in the, in the last 20 years, right? How much of the IT companies, let's say a Wipro or a TCS is investing on research? I mean, they have a huge, I mean, they're sitting on a huge pool of money, but compared to, let's say, a, a Microsoft or a, or a Google brain that is researching quite a bit on in AI, is this that they don't have that... Um, that amount of money to to put into research or what is the gap the gap is never money okay india is a sufficiently wealthy country particularly on a ppp adjusted basis which means that uh, uh, researchers like me work for peanuts okay? so you don't count my stanford wage you count my indian wage and i'm extremely affordable so in that fashion uh, the, the the bottleneck, the choke point today in India is not the money. The choke point is management and strategy. Most software services organizations in India have the DNA of waiting. Their worldview is I'm a software services organization. And they are remarkable. Okay, so you mentioned Infosys. Uh, once Narayan Murthy and some others had organized a meeting at the Info, uh, Mysore facility, which is India's largest engineering college. Okay, They've done that. <laughs> They built it. So the worldview in many Indian uh, IT services companies is that you give me any technology, I will master it. Okay. So if an airline in America goes to a software company in India 
and says, I want you to do my optimization using ABCD tools in Julia. Okay, the Indian software company will say, yes, sir. And within three months, they will produce a 500 man team that will do Julia programming for the customer. But the Indian software company will not be proactive because their fundamental business model is responsive. They don't go ahead of the curve. They're always behind the curve. Okay, so Indian software services is a piece of the puzzle, which in a way is very advanced technology for a poor country. But by its very nature, is always behind the curve. It is waiting for other people to say, I want you to do X. Then they say, yes, sir. And then they'll develop that knowledge behind the curve. And then they are in a labor and a staffing kind of worldview rather than the developing development of products, the development of IP. Okay, that is one piece of the puzzle. And then there are other pieces of the private sector which are actually more interesting and more challenging and doing more interesting stuff. Uh, by now, there is a famous Indian firm called Inmobi, which was located purely in India. And it became one of the world's leaders in advertising within a mobile phone. And this was pure technology development done in India. So there are some such companies. In the software as a service world, India is certainly doing more product. But in most cases, I think there's not much technical complexity in those products. They're easy products to develop. They're more rich domain knowledge and it turns into a product. That's my opinion and understanding so far. So I don't think there's a whole lot going on at the frontiers, okay? There is a lot of services work going on around CPUs, but India is not a leader in CPUs. I don't think there are many people in India uh, using modern CPUs and GPUs and AI chips and playing in modern machine learning. That's not something that's happening in India. So I don't think there's a whole lot going on by way of global cutting edge R&D in India. That said, it remains an economic miracle. The good things that the software services world and the so-called other business services where it could be legal, it could be accounting, it's just a whole range of work is coming to India that is enabled by the IT revolution that is going great for India. Mm. And getting feedback from uh, some of my friends and colleagues, these big sort of fang corporations setting up their a research arm in India, you know, that will is working. Definitely. That is, that is really driving the knowledge and capabilities of the top scientists and engineers of India. So I feel that is a really powerful pathway through which people are being developed of a different level altogether. So it's not happening in the IITs. It's not happening in IIC. It's happening in these kinds of private organizations. Yeah. And, and the feedback that I got was the quality of work uh, that, you know, some of them are uh, you know, U.S. returnees, uh, and and they say that the quality of uh, work that they do in India is is pretty much the same level as as they did here. Yeah. So who knows? You know, maybe uh, maybe after a few years they'll quit and then they'll form something yeah. on their own. So, so tens of thousands of very high quality uh, individuals are being made inside these uh, research operations located within India, being built and run by foreign companies. That stuff is going well. Yeah. And and you, you touched on research and research being funded primarily by the government. And um, let's say something like an IIT. Uh, if if I am researching on something that is funded by the government, it's it's pretty lucrative. And I, I do have a steady stream of um, steady stream of monetary benefit. But there is no the, there is no uh, how do I put it? There is no strive for excellence uh, when there is no competition, right? So, uh, well, I mean, in STEM subjects, 
mm-hmm. in science, technology, engineering, medicine. In STEM subjects, for a researcher, the competition is global. You should be competing with other researchers elsewhere in the world on patents, on products that are turned into real world products, on research papers and so on. So there should be that kind of uh, energy. So as an example, uh, my uh, wingmate from IIT Bombay, Sanjay Jain, uh, was at Google and was a pioneer in pushing what is called Google Mapmaker, which became a system that is now used and run in Hyderabad on a large scale where maps for Google Maps all over the world are now being made by teams in India. But that original idea and the design of the software and the building of that system was done in India at the initiative of an Indian genius, namely Sanjay Jain. These kinds of things are uh, what people should be aspiring to. And then it comes back to the fire in the belly, the extent to which there are constraints of operating in a government environment. Who will choose to be an employee at a government research organization? I think this is becoming a bit more of a concern than it used to be. Okay. Yeah. I mean, hopefully, hopefully things change. I mean, things are already changing, but I think, I think they're just going to get better. Dr. Ajay Shah, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Uh, it's been such an honor. And thank you for agreeing to come on the show. And it's, it's been such an honor talking to you. I'm happy to do this. Uh, uh, there's a lot of stuff going on. May I point uh, readers to uh, ajayshah.substack.com? Yeah. And uh, there is a YouTube show, Everything is Everything. And uh, whenever you see pieces going on that are exciting to you, just reach out. I'm happy to do a deep dive on any one narrow thing that is going on. There is a very large number of things that are going on in my life. And I'm happy to deep dive into any one of them with you at a time. Yeah, that'll be awesome. Uh, Yeah, do check out uh, the Seen and the Unseen podcast hosted by Amit Verma and Everything is Everything. Uh, Are you doing a podcast on spotify as well uh for everything and ev- is everything or is it just Are youtube everything is everything is purely youtube as of today um it is a visual product it is not intended as an audio product uh we are doing the scary thing of uh putting a camera on us the theory is that yeah, maybe you will see something more than just the spoken word okay interesting yeah i mean i I remember looking up Amit Verma like uh, two years ago or probably one and a half years ago. And the only thing that I saw was like one video and people were commenting, oh, the man behind the voice is finally out and he looks exactly like we think he looked (laughs) and so on. But uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a great podcast and it's, I mean, I would say it's a great conversation. uh, And uh, I think deep diving on some interesting points is just, uh, especially when you are doing a drive, right? It's it's really hooking all the all the listeners up. So please continue doing that. Is it, what what is the cadence? Like one, one episode a week? Correct. So Amit produces The Scene and the Unseen uh, over, I think it's been running for seven years now. Yeah, it's been running for a bit more than seven years. It's a weekly show. Uh, I think I have done a total of 10 or 11 episodes with him through these seven years. Uh, and Amit and I are doing Everything is Everything which is uh, also a weekly YouTube show. So the Seen and the Unseen drops every Sunday and uh, Everything is Everything drops every Friday morning. So okay. generally the rhythm that a lot of people have found is that the uh, show drops on Friday morning and through the day there tends to be a little bit of curious people opening up a little bit of the video and talking to each other. And then it's weekend viewing. That's 
in the weekend, people have promised that I will spend one hour doing this. But we're also getting a lot of binge watching. So by now, 11 episodes are out and every now and then we meet a new person who says, you know, I only discovered it at episode eight. And then I spent three whole days watching all the past episodes. Yeah. So the material is not timely and topical. The material is intended to be ageless. Yeah. I think one of the fantastic realizations, uh, I mean, my story with the scene and the unseen is, is quite different because I was I was very um, uh, sort of, um, I, I love Joy Bhattacharya and the kind of knowledge that he brings to the table. So I was just looking up Joy Bhattacharya on, on Spotify and came um, uh, uh, an episode of The Seen and the Unseen and I was happening to drive from LA to San Diego at the time. I was like, okay, one and one hour, this, this is going to be a great conversation. And then I started to uncover a lot more episodes with, with Krish Ashok and, and public policy episodes. And then uh, it was, I, I, I was one of those, you know, I actually binged Seen and the Unseen and now I'm binging Everything is Everything. So, uh, so great content. And sometimes um, you start to discover people that you didn't know and their contributions, you start to appreciate their contributions to uh, uh, to the society. So that, that's that been great. Uh, 